It is so good to be here with you today. If you have kids or nieces or nephews or have literally ever been around any child ever, you know that it is true they happen to say the darndest of things. Sometimes kids will say things that just melt your heart entirely, like my son two weeks ago when I picked him up and his mom up at the airport and came running and said, Daddy, I miss you. And you're just filled with love and awe and wonder. And other times they say things that are not intended as an insult, but it certainly is one. Like a couple days ago when my daughter was fretting that she didn't have any clothes to wear to make her look old for the hundredth day of school. And she said, Mom, can I just wear your clothes? Hmm. But if you've spent any time around kids at some point or another, you will hear them say things that as an adult you know are incredibly hurtful, incredibly mean. I wish I didn't have a brother. Or it's not fair. One that I hear regularly is how come I have to clean up somebody else's mess? Because if you don't, your mom will. And that's not fair either. Time and time again, kids open their mouths and speak from their hearts. And what comes out is both full of love and joy and also full of pain and sometimes anger. We like to picture children as beautiful and innocent, and they are wonderful and they are lovely, but they are far from innocent. They know just the right buttons to push to get what they want and just the right things to say when life's not fair, to take that knife and dig it a little deeper. Today, today as we get into Romans... This cry of that's not fair rings even truer for you and me. You see, most of our sin is not our fault. And yet, it's entirely your fault. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. If you would like to follow along, it's on page 1176 in the blue Bibles in front of you or upstairs on the walls along the side. If you brought your own Bible or want to use your phone, that's welcome as well. Romans chapter 5, Paul is describing the weight of sin and the curse that every one of us is under and this reality that none of us are worthy of anything other than death. And he's built this argument to now it's near climax, this idea that all of our sin dooms us, but it's not entirely fair. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Paul, as he continues this argument, he shifts away from each of our sins and that we all deserve death. And he says, look, death has come from one man's sin. Just as one man's sin corrupted everything, think of what's to come in Christ. That's where he goes next. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
See, there's a truth in Scripture that most of us don't like to face. You cannot, and I cannot, get it right. We will do the wrong thing. Because in our DNA, in our very fabric of how God made us, we are broken and sinful. Not because God made us broken, but because long ago in the beginning, sin entered in through one man, and that changed everything. And oftentimes when we deal with issues of sin, we want to focus on the external things, the things we see and the things we feel. So we know it's bad to flip people off in traffic, so we just try really hard to stop that. And we know that maybe it's bad if we punch somebody when we're angry, so we just try really hard not to do that. But what about the things that we know are probably bad, but everybody does them? Like a little bit of gossip doesn't hurt, right? A few white lies are okay, right? Just the small things we know are probably not good, but it's not that bad. It'll be okay. And so when we do come around to saying, how do I change who I am? We just focus on those external things. But what about the sin that lingers deep within? What about the self-loathing that leads to the fear of rejection and therefore the anger every time somebody says something that might make you look less than perfect? What about the things that are deep within that you suppress and don't pay attention to? Or the sin, as one man put it, we may have Jesus in our heart, but we have Grandpa in our bones. The sin that is from long before that we had nothing to do with to control us, but that has shaped who we've become and we don't even know it. See, when Paul writes that death has reigned, there is a real truth. Every one of us can count on two things, death and taxes. And depending on who you are, you can decide which one's worse. Every one of us knows death is coming, and so in our culture we try to avoid it and sanitize it, and we whitewash our cemeteries and make them pretty and orderly and out of sight. And we remove death from our living rooms, surrounded by family, and we make somebody else take care of it in a white, clean hospital elsewhere. We will face death. It is inevitable. And yet most of us don't want to face it. But the truth is that not just the things we do that can be seen are filled with evil. The things lingering deep inside of us. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus is questioned at one point and he responds like this. In Matthew 15, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Our very longings, the things that drive us, the things that motivate us, when we're honest with ourselves, are full of all kinds of evil. And it's tempting to say, well, I'm better than that person, so I'm really not that bad. But that's not at all what Scripture says. Now, to understand this idea that through one man sin entered in, we need to back up a little bit, and I want to paint the picture so you're not just left with me assuming you know it. So we're going to back all the way up to Genesis in the beginning. If you're not super familiar with Genesis, it's a fantastic book, sometimes a little hard to read. 
But in the beginning, in chapter 2 of Genesis, God speaks to Adam. And you'll note that here in this chapter, Eve, woman, is not yet present. And God only in this point speaks to Adam. And he says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, here in the beginning, God has made all things, and He's made them good and perfect. And He's taken out of all of this creation and made a garden shaped and formed that Adam had a purpose to work the ground with God, to join Him in creating beauty in the care of this world. And He speaks to Adam, you can do anything, just don't eat of this one tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And at the time, Adam knew everything that was good because everything God had made had been good. So what God was seeking to spare Adam from was the knowledge of evil. That is, the experience and the holistic reality of what evil does in one of us, in man, in our heart, in our bodies, in this world. God said, I don't want this suffering. Don't eat of this tree. And Eve is absent. A little bit later in chapter 3, we see Eve now present. And there's a serpent who's more crafty than all the other beasts who comes to Eve and begins to tempt her. Begins to say, did God really say don't eat this tree? Did He really say you can't have this? In fact, He tempts her and says, when you eat of this tree, you will be like God. But if you've read the story, you know that in chapter 1, God made male and female in His image she was already like him. This is what happens in verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Oftentimes, as we recount this story, perhaps you've heard it said, Eve was deceived, and then she brought the fruit to Adam, and Adam ate. And in most of our culture, when you look at religious paintings or art or any kind of depiction of the story, Adam's always like off in la-la land, and Eve kind of sneakily comes up Right? Like she's bringing Snow White, that, that tainted apple, like, here, please eat this. It's delicious. And he eats it totally innocently, having no idea what's going on. And oh, suddenly, look at you, Eve, you caused all this pain and problem. And often we paint this story as if it's all Eve's fault. But where was Adam? Maybe you caught it. While she was being tempted, while she was eating, while she was bringing the fruit to Adam, it says Adam was with her. He was there in the temptation. He was there when, God, when the serpent said, did God really say? He was there through it all. And what was he doing? Nothing. So when Paul writes that through one man's sin, one man's action, sin enters in for all of us. I don't know if you know this, but throughout Scripture, Eve is never blamed for the fall. 
Throughout history, Eve is always blamed for the fall. But all of Scripture, from this point forward, says Adam and his sin did this. It was his action. See, God had spoken to him, and rather than standing firm on what God said, rather than trusting in God's word, rather than strengthening Eve when she's tempted by the devil to say, no, God did say this, this is his promise, rather than that, he's passive and he's silent and says nothing. And he eats, and then they discover they are naked. An image throughout the rest of Scripture used to convey a sense of guilt and a sense of shame. Now, it's important to note there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I have done something wrong. I hope that every one of you, myself included, at some point feels guilt for what you've done. Because we have all said something to a friend that was not very loving, treated a coworker in less than kind ways. We have all been in the wrong doing what is wrong. And guilt should always point us back to repentance. What I have done is not good. But shame is something else. You see, they covered themselves with fig leaves because they were ashamed. Ashamed not of what they had done, but of who they were. If guilt says you have done something wrong, shame says you are something wrong. Shame says everything about you is so bad you are not worth love. But shame has no place in our lives. Shame is not what we were created for or what God is actively doing in us. But we'll get there. He continues now in in Genesis, this story And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, Adam and Eve and you and I were made to be with God in all things. Perfect union where we could be face to face before him and he could speak and we could receive. We were made to be in that place without the knowledge of sin and sorrow and suffering. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Our sin and our shame creates a disconnect between the God who loves us and the things we can understand. We hide and we run because what if others knew who I really was? What if I was honest with God and God looked at me and said, I don't actually really like who you are or what you've become. And and God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I picture this like asking your three-year-old, have you eaten the cookies I told you not to eat? And the crumbs are all over his lap and the chocolate all over his face. Like, no, I didn't do it. Adam responds, the woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He doesn't just pass the buck. Eve did it. He says, no, God, this is really your fault because you gave me this woman and if you wouldn't have given me this woman, then I wouldn't have done this problem. And and how often do we do that ourselves? God, if you hadn't made me this way, if you hadn't put this desire in me, if you hadn't caused me to stumble, if you hadn't, and it's always his fault. 
It's always somebody else's blame, not ours. Then God speaks to the woman, what is this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I love this story of our fall into sin. And I love how Paul connects it. You see, Paul, when he connects, he says, look, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. You see, none of us have the opportunity that Adam had here in the garden. Adam was made perfect and without sin. He had the power within him to do what was right and to remain without sin. And yet, having the power to not sin, he instead sinned. And every one of us, after the fact, are now corrupted and broken by that reality. And not a one of us can choose to not sin. In fact, our very nature is now twisted in a broken form that now our very natural desire within us is constantly set against that of God. That not a one of us can choose to not sin, but we're bound in all things somehow to sin. To do the wrong thing constantly. And as we'll see here in Romans in a moment, just as he had the power to not sin, and he ruined it for all of us. Our hope as Christians is in a God who has the power not only to not sin, but to restore all who have sinned. I'm going to end in Genesis before we go back to Romans with this. If you fast forward a little bit in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 15, God is speaking to the woman and giving this curse. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sorry, this is speaking to the serpent before the woman. He says, one of the offseed, one of the children of this woman will bruise your head. This enemy who led Eve into temptation, who deceived her, who caused her to question God's word, this enemy will be crushed by one of the descendants of Eve. And Adam, after the curse of death and after God kicks or gets ready to kick them out of the garden, after God does these things, Adam looks at Eve and he names her. In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, the truth of the matter is, naming somebody is to give them an identity. It took Laura and I three days after Elijah was born to figure out what do we call our firstborn son? We we didn't know. To name somebody is to speak who they are over and against what they've done or their own failures. And after sin enters in, Adam looks at Eve and says, you are the mother of all living because of this promise God has given that through her descendants, there will come one who rescues everybody. And God, he takes and makes garments of skin to cover their shame. And we could so easily pass right over this, but this is the first place in the entire Bible where death happens. You see, because the only way you make a garment of skin is by putting something to death to take its skin. And blood is spilled for one purpose, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, 
to give them now something new to live in as those who are under the blood shed for them. Fast forward now back to Romans. Paul, he continues, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that the sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, for Adam, his one act doomed all of us to a life of guilt and shame and condemnation and being disconnected from the God who made us and who loves us wholly. But if one man's sin can doom all of us, how much more can one man's sinless life rescue us? How much more can one man's sinless sacrifice given for us while we were still sinners, while we were still far from God? How much more can that blood that is shed change who we are to cover all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt so that no longer when we look in the mirror do we see someone and say, I am a broken, miserable sinner. But now we can see all of our shame and say, Christ loves me anyway. Christ declares that I am righteous, holy, without sin. Not self-righteous where you can go on telling everybody else how much better than them you are but having received a free gift that is full of abundant grace. See, I think our minds in this world and even our children are quick to remind us of things that are hurtful. It's not fair, we cry. And yet this one man, in the most unfair of all ways, gave everything for us. And so our hope as Christians is that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That when we look in the mirror and we see all the ways we are not yet who we want to be, all the failures and the hurts and the pains, when we look and we see all the things that are deep within us that are broken and we cannot fix, 
When we see all of that, we can see Christ at work in us saying, this is mine. I will be the one who heals. I will be the one who restores. I will draw you back to be reunited with God. And so in this abundance of grace, you and I are invited every single day to bring all of our sin openly to Him. Because the promise is if one man's sin could condemn us and one man's perfect sacrifice could free us, there will come a day in the future when Christ returns, when we will no longer have the opportunity to sin. When we can look at those whom we love and every thought and every desire and everything within us is not filled with selfish ambition or pride or arrogance or any number of hurtful things. But when we can look at those whom we love and be filled with true, pure love. And grace may abound more and more. And you and I as Christians can live each day Not self-righteous, but made righteous by Him. Surrendering our brokenness, saying, God, I can't, but you can. Coming before Him, saying, I don't have it within me to love my neighbor as you do. But you do. And as we draw near to Him, we find Him slowly working in us. In fact, going on in Romans, he continues to talk about how we are transformed by Him. We are given a newness of our mind, of our body, of our soul to become someone new. Never on this side of His return perfect, but always made perfect in the sight of God. That we do not need the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, but can have life to the fullest. In fact, elsewhere Jesus says He's come to give abundant life found only in this grace that abounds more and more. So are you sinful? Are you broken? Are you not yet who you want to be? Christ is enough for a sinner like you and a sinner like me. Will you pray with me? God, through Adam, sin has entered in. And we continually do what we do not want to do. Out of our heart pours forth all kinds of evil and slander and murder and adultery. We are broken through and through. God, just as you shed blood to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, you have shed blood to cover our shame too. Teach us each day to draw near to you, to live in this abundance of grace, to forgive those who have wronged us, and to forgive ourselves when we continue to not be who we want to be. God, teach us to live with life abundant in which each day we draw closer to you, finding our strength and our hope and the promise that it's not about us, but all about you in us, at work through us for the sake of those who don't yet know how great you are. God, we pray for those who are in need of healing 
Would you pour this healing out upon their broken bodies? Restore them that they may have strength to love and to serve and to seek you each and every day. We pray for those who are wrecked with shame. Would you remind them today that you have said they are perfect. Not by their works, but by your doing. Would you remove the sense that says, I am not enough? God, would you lead us to repentance for the ways in which we have harmed others? May we be a people each and every day who are filled with abundant grace that we may pour it out freely on those who sin against us. Now, Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.